Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. Well, you know, the field of hand surgery is not something the average person associates with plastic surgery, but it is indeed a subspecialty. And no, I don't mean the cosmetic rejuvenation of the appearance of the hand, though that really is a thing. What we're talking about when we refer to hand surgery is the surgical specialization in treating the problems, diseases, and injuries which impact the function of the hand. Yes, there's a lot that could go wrong with this small but oh-so-important body part. Imagine all the different types of interwoven components, the nerves, blood vessels, tendons, ligaments, and bones, that make up the hand's anatomy. They are miraculously packed into this small space, but arranged in the most efficient and graceful way. It's quite fascinating when you take the time to think about how everything can possibly work so smoothly together in such tight quarters. And it's often that fascination that spurs some physicians to study the field of hand surgery in more depth and devote a portion or all of their surgical practice to it. Now, before we go further, I do have a few previous podcast episodes which are dedicated to the discussion of some of the most common hand problems, like carpal tunnel syndrome, tendonitis, trigger finger, ganglion cysts, broken bones, and the like. They are very informative, so come back and take a listen when you have time to episodes 26, 27, 28, and 29. But today, we're going to focus on the bigger picture of hand surgery. To give you a better understanding of what it is, what major accomplishments have been achieved in the field, and where it might be headed in the future. And you're going to experience a Plastic Surgery Decoded podcast first. This time, I've assembled a panel of experts on our topic rather than a single person. And they'll all have a somewhat different point of view as they are at different points in their careers. Dr. Lynn Ketchum is a retired but very accomplished hand surgeon. Dr. Stephen McCabe is an equally accomplished mid-career surgeon, and Dr. Ryan Endress is, comparatively, still somewhat early in his career and rapidly making a name for himself. Let's begin. Well, I first want to take a brief moment to thank all of you for being here. This is just a really wonderful assembly of hand surgery talent all together. And we have first Dr. Lynn Ketchum, who is currently retired from practice, but went to Tulane for medical school, trained at Kansas University, and was very instrumental in treatment advances for flexor tendon repair and a hand ailment called Dupuytren's disease, among other accomplishments. 
And we have Dr. Stephen McCabe, who went to medical school in Toronto and did his plastic surgery residency at Western University in London, Ontario. Then he did hand fellowships in Toronto and Louisville, Kentucky, where I did my fellowship, and that's how I knew Dr. McCabe. He currently practices in Toronto now, and he's working on a biography of the father of hand surgery, Sterling Bennell. And he was former director of the hand program at University of Toronto. And we have Dr. Ryan Endrest, who is from the Midwest originally. He is currently in private practice at Swedish Medical Center in Colorado. And prior to that, he had an academic position at Kansas University, and that's how I knew him. Wonderful surgeon as well. Thank you to all of you, and welcome. Well, let's get started. I do want to ask you a few things and get your opinion and perspective about some of the aspects of hand surgery, how it started, what it has accomplished, and where it might be headed. Dr. Ketchum? I wonder if I could ask you to explain what a hand surgeon is and what it takes to achieve that position. Um, What does a hand surgeon do, and and how do you get into it? Okay. Well, a, a hand surgeon basically treats everything in the hand and everything related to the hand such as the forearm. All the uh, muscles in the forearm eventually reach the hand pretty much, including the wrist. And um, so a hand surgeon should be able to treat any condition from the fingertips to the elbow, but in some cases it goes to the armpit or axilla where the brachial plexus will house nerves that innervate just about all the structures in the hand. So it can go to the shoulder. It's not too many hand surgeons do brachial plexus work. And so hand surgery would include all of those structures within the hand, wrist, and, and arm that you're talking about. So the nerves, the tendons, the blood vessels, the bones, ligaments, etc., and skin conditions as well. Also, Dr. McCabe, you described hand surgery as a regional specialty. Could you explain to us what that means? One of Sterling Bennell's great contributions was his concept that hand surgery is a combination of orthopedic surgery, plastic surgery, and, and uh, neurosurgery. He was capable in all three areas, and he realized that care of the hand should be done by a single surgeon who had capabilities in each of those three areas. And he therefore referred it to as a regional specialty, not specifically a tissue specialty. And uh, that was one of the uh, real uh, realizations that brought hand surgery forward as a separate specialty area. While most doctors who do an orthopedic or plastic surgery training residency will get some degree of training in the basics of hand surgery, I think the public doesn't realize that in hand surgery, you must complete a residency in orthopedic surgery or plastic surgery, or even actually general surgery first, and then do an additional year of what's called fellowship, where you really focus on that training of surgery of the hand intensely. Dr. Ketchum? What was it about hand surgery? I know it sounds like you had a lot of experience um, participating in it during your training, but what was it about hand surgery that you were really excited about or created the, a spark for you? 
Well, it really started in my first year in medical school in anatomy class uh, where we dissected cadavers, which included uh, hands and upper extremities. And I was amazed how many moving mm -hmm. parts there were in close proximity to each other. But as I learned later, it's not just putting these parts together yes. that gives you a final result because they have to move normally. So my interest continued when in my senior year in medical school, I had an elective and I spent Wednesday afternoon with Dr. Daniel Reardon, who is one of Dr. Bunnell's mm -hmm. appointed surgeons to lead one of the hand centers. He was a wonderful person, and I was so impressed with his meticulousness and knowledge of anatomy of the hand. Dr. McCabe, could you tell me how you became acquainted with hand surgery and how you became inspired to become a hand surgeon? Sure. Thanks, Regina. So it's very interesting in our fourth year of medical school, the fourth year class is allowed to invite a surgeon to give a special lecture. And in our fourth year of medical school, Dr. Mangtelo, who's the father of microsurgery in Canada, Dr. Mangtelo had the opportunity to invite Roland Daniel. And Roland Daniel has a storied history. He was in Australia as a fellow. Roland Daniel did the first free flap. Uh, which is a transfer of tissue using microsurgery. So he gave a lecture to our fourth year medical class about microsurgery, and that really turned me on to hand surgery and microsurgery. And from there, I just uh, was a bullet. I had to uh, pursue that as a specialty. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and how about you, Dr. Endress? What kind of spark occurred to really get you going about hand surgery? Sure. So I did a fourth year, or excuse me, a, an elective in research and trauma surgery after my first year in medical school. And as part of that, I followed the, the team clinically. And I was just fascinated by the, the hand trauma that we would see in the ER and all of the, the breadth of the injuries and the intricacy and in repairing some of those some of those injuries. And it just so happened that the chief resident on trauma at the time had already matched into a plastic surgery fellowship. So I kind of gravitated into plastic surgery and, and hand surgery that way. And, you know, chose a residency that had a strong, you know, hand surgery component to it. That's wonderful. Great. Well, mm -hmm. we're glad you did. <laughs> what I'd love to do is talk about what I'm calling the milestone developments in hand surgery that continue to propel the field further and further in terms of what can be accomplished to help patients and improve their function, improve their daily outlook in terms of the use of their hands. What are some of the things that you think stair steps along the way, along the decades, have contributed to the growth of the field of hand surgery and really the expansion of what we can offer patients. Dr. Ketchum? Well, it all started in 1944, which is about the time that Dr. Bunnell started these nine hand centers, and they treated 22,000 hand injuries wow. during the Second World War in the United States. But his interest goes back to 1918 when he published a paper in which he said that the distance between the distal palmar crease, the crease of the hand closest to the fingers, and the PIP joint, which is the first crease 
of the fingers. Uh, it was a very difficult mm -hmm. area to repair tendons, and uh, he called it no man's land in a paper that mm -hmm. he published in 1918. Oh, gosh. And I just want to clarify for the listeners that a tendon is a structure. Some patients will call it a leader, but it's uh, basically kind of a cord that is attached to a muscle, typically in the forearm, and then connecting that to, say, a bone in the finger, so that when the muscle contracts, it pulls on that cord or that tendon, and that creates the movement in the finger. And so yeah. when that tendon is cut, right. you're right, it's a very difficult problem. And as you're saying, when it passes through that no man's land, it can be a challenge to repair in such a way that you preserve motion. Correct. And Dr. Brunel recommended that in lieu of repairing tendons in that area, that one should perform a tendon grafts where you take a tendon that is expendable somewhere else in the hand and tie it to the injured tendon proximally or closer to the wrist, have a suture line there and then another suture line close to where it inserts at the tip of the finger. So his closest ally, Joseph Boys, uh, who was the first editor of the Journal of Hand Surgery, published a paper with 1,000 tendon grafts. But in 1965, Dr. Claude Verdan in Lausanne, Switzerland, published a series of successful repairs in no man's land. That was a big advance in surgery of the hand. Wow. And this was closely followed uh, by a series of your mentor, Dr. Harold Kleinert. Oh, yes. Great surgeon. And later by Dr. Robert Duran. And I was there when both papers were presented uh, several years apart. But when Dr. Kleiner presented his paper before the Hand Society, it was very controversial. Did people think it was heresy? <laughs> right. They sent a team of four members to Louisville where Dr. Kleinert practiced, and you had your fellowship, yes. and if they found it to be not factual, they were going to drum him out of the Hand Society. <laughs> but what actually happened was that they found it to be true, and within 10 years, Dr. Kleinert was president <laughs> of the Hand Society. <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. I remember hearing that story uh, as a hand surgery fellow myself and being very impressed with it. So advances in tendon repair were really crucial to improving what we could offer patients with traumatic injuries to tendons. What else do you think might have been another milestone along the line of the development and advancement of hand surgery as a field? Well, sometimes nerves are damaged, which supply the muscles that do the work in the hand. And there are three major nerves, the median nerve, the ulnar nerve, and the radial nerve. And with injury to the median and ulnar nerve, people develop what is known as a claw hand. Their hands look like a claw, like a bird. Kind of contracted. And uh, the person that has developed a wonderful operation to correct that. It's called the many-tailed tendon transfer. I'm referring to Dr. Paul Brandt. 
Dr. Brand devised this operation, and he transferred a muscle from an area that was not injured, one of the radial nerve muscles and tendons on the back of the hand, and he then went to the leg to get the plantaris tendon, which was expendable, and divided them into four tails, went into the hand, and uh, it restored the function that the median and the ulnar nerves at the wrist close to it normally did. It was marvelous. And actually, Dr. Brand was the first person to form a hand rehab center in Valore, India. And my mentors, Dr. Robinson and Dr. Masters, went to India to learn his technique. And they came back, and I learned them from, nice. from him kind of like therapy for those patients who had undergone this surgery. It's not just the surgery, right? It's the therapy afterwards and the activities you have the patient do, very specific activities to protect the repair or reconstruction, but to also keep things gliding and moving. Yes. And so the advancement of hand reconstruction and tendon transfers has been pretty crucial to the field of hand surgery. Um, other things you can think of? Dr. McCabe? So um, after people learned that uh, we could repair small blood vessels, it became possible to reattach parts that were completely amputated from the body. So uh, one example was a replantation or reattachment of amputated fingers or parts of the hand, arm, uh, uh, and forearm. Um, the first one was in 1962 in China when the surgeon uh, reattached an amputated thumb. So to do that, we have to repair the bones, the tendons, the nerves. And then using microsurgical technique, we can actually repair the small tubes, the arteries that take the blood circulation into the thumb or finger or the hand, and the veins that take the blood out of the hand. So uh, replantation of amputated parts is possible now, and this has been done for, as I mentioned, fingers, hands, up the arm, under very special circumstances, other parts of the body, like the leg, for example, the scalp, the ear, uh, the penis. So uh, reattachment of parts that is completely amputated has uh, become possible with the advent of microsurgery. Yeah, so microsurgery, again, is using uh, a microscope to greatly magnify the field of surgery so that very tiny little sutures, you know, the size of a hair, can be placed into these structures to put them back together. So that's been a great uh, addition to the world of surgery and hand surgery in particular. Um, and um, what about um, the advent of joint replacement? Um, in joint replacement, we know about larger joints. Certainly you hear about people's hips and, and knees, etc. But Dr. Endress, what about replacing joints at the hand and finger level? How has that been helpful and what can be done? Sure. I mean, that's, you know, essentially a way to treat, you know, diseased joints that are either not functioning properly or painful um, in a way that preserves motion, essentially, as opposed to a joint fusion, which is intentionally healing, you know, bones together, which is very effective at eliminating pain, but also eliminates motion. You know, you have an option to try to eliminate pain and preserve motion, or at least preserve some motion. Um, so that's, mm -hmm. you know, very helpful for, for a lot of people, especially, you know, people that have, you know, uncontrolled 
you know, arthritic disease that otherwise would be very disabling for function if they didn't have an option to preserve, preserve motion. And Dr. McCabe, what about um, progress in what we call congenital hand surgery or trying to correct birth defects or reconstruct um, problems? What are some of the things we can do as hand surgeons? So there are several areas of hand surgery that are quite subspecialized now, and pediatric hand surgery is one of those. So children can be born with congenital differences or variations in their hand. Some of these can negatively affect the child's ability to use their hand. And so there are procedures that have been developed to try to improve the function. Um, some of the common things are when the fingers are joined together. Um, that's called syndactyly. And that's a common problem that uh, can be improved by surgery, for example. Dr. Andrus, other things you can think of? Sure, yeah. No, we've, we've gained a lot of knowledge through, through very dedicated research on on what happens when a nerve is injured and the best way to try to restore the function of a given nerve, which is to help restore, you know, movement and also sensation. So we've had quite a lot of advances in nerve transfers, which is taking a working nerve and moving it to a nerve that's not working to help restore motion and sensation. And also the associated timing when things like that need to be done. And also some of the just diagnostic techniques have gotten so much better um, from testing directly how nerves work, special MRIs that look at nerve you know, ultrasounds. So we've, nerve surgery's come a long way um, in, in the last couple decades. Could you explain what wide awake surgery is, that advance, and how that's important, how that's helpful to you as a surgeon? Sure. So wide awake surgery is, is essentially just as it sounds, where the patient is, is completely awake during the operation. But, but numbing medicine has been, you know, applied to the area or operating on the hand or the forearm um, that allows you to work on their hand while they're still awake so they can voluntarily move their hand. So if you're repairing a tendon, you can see if the tendon is gliding the way you want, or you can see if it's at the appropriate tension in it, or if you're freeing up scar, you can see when it's free because, you know, they can move now, things like that. I think that's been a very big advance in you know, fine-tuning a lot of tendon and nerve-type work. Yeah, so that feedback is crucial, really. Dr. Ketchum? Could you tell us about the um, procedure of what's called a toe-to-thumb transfer? Yes. The entire toe was transferred along with its arteries and nerves to replace a thumb that had been either amputated traumatically or was missing from birth. And the first one was done in England, but later Dr. Urbanic and others in the United States did these operations to restore the function of the thumb. And amazingly, it looked fairly much like a thumb. Yeah, you wouldn't think it would, but it actually does. That's what's so impressive yes. about it. Right. And Dr. Ketchum, uh, what about the process of what we call polycization? Could you explain what that is? especially for a, a pediatric patient or a congenital absence of the thumb, meaning born without a thumb? Well, some children are born without a thumb, or I've had patients that have been in rodeos and have lost their thumbs by the rope just taking the thumb off. Yes. And the index finger, including all of the finger bones, nerves, and blood vessels can be moved over to the thumb position and there's a shortening of that 
index finger that takes place and it is rotated to form a new thumb. And I have to tell you that I had the privilege of visiting Dr. Dieter Buck Gromko in Hamburg, Germany in 1972. And Dr. Buck Gromko published 120 of these polycizations for children that were born without thumbs because of a drug that was poisonous to the mother during pregnancy. And then what about the advancement of or development of um, transplantation uh, for hands, uh, hand parts, uh, et cetera? Uh, Dr. McKay, what, what has gone on or what, what are we able to do now with transplantation? So this is a merger of uh, two uh, things that have come together. One is our ability to reattach amputated limbs. And the other is the advances in immunosuppression that allow the transplantation of major organs. So putting these two things together, we're able to take a limb from a deceased donor and transplant that limb onto a recipient who's lost a hand or, or arm. So um, the first, this first occurred in 1998 in France, and then in Louisville we followed in 1999. And that person still has a functioning limb. Uh, since that time, the longest, and basically Pretty the amazing. first, yeah. So there have been a few hundred uh, limb transplants, both bilateral and unilateral, around the world. There's a professional organization dedicated to learning more, understanding, and studying these patients. Um, it's a balance between the risks that the patient has to incur by taking lifelong immunosuppression and the benefit. So... Uh, when a person has an organ, such as a major organ or a limb, transplanted from another person, the natural body's reaction is to reject that foreign tissue. Mm. So the patient is required to take medications called immunosuppressant medications to suppress their immune system to prevent their body from rejecting that organ or the limb. So those medications have some risk to them. And so the benefit that we can achieve from the transplanted limb has to be greater than the risk that the patient assumes by taking these medications. So it's a delicate balance. It's still controversial. It's being carefully studied. And, uh, and uh, there'll be a lot more development in that area as we learn more, but also as the immunosuppressant medications are improved and the risks become less, I think that transplantation will be replacing body parts rather than trying to remake them. And this will revolutionize hand surgery for sure and probably all of reconstructive plastic surgery. Yeah, that's, it's just amazing what's potentially on the horizon. Um, well, Dr. Andrus, uh, I, I want to ask all of you, you know, what you find challenging about hand surgery and what you find rewarding. And maybe you can recall an interesting case. Uh, Dr. Andrus, could you tell us... Um, what you do find challenging about hand surgery and then what you what rewards you reap from the satisfaction of being able to accomplish certain things sure i mean i think a lot of a lot of things about hand surgery are challenging intellectually because there's just a tremendous variability in what we do um it, you know and things come up with you know, fine injuries to tendons or, or the intrinsic, the little muscles in your hand and people have really challenging problems to try to restore their function, sometimes after they've had multiple previous operations. So it's challenging to know kind of what other options you can come up with when you've, 
when you've kind of hit the end of your standard road and, you know, what can we do to keep making people better? You know, especially after mm -hmm. some really devastating injuries. I work at a level one trauma center, so we see a lot of really mangled hands and limbs and, and trying to get them back to as anatomically normal as possible is, is very challenging in those, in those injuries. Mm -hmm. As far as rewarding, um, you know, there are, there's one particular case. There was a, a young kid from Texas that was involved in a, in a drive-by shooting and, and had a bullet in his, in his neck, right adjacent to the spinal cord and had a brachial oh plexus injury and tremendous pain. And it was very early after his injury like six weeks after his injury, he just had intractable pain and the PMR docs had tried everything. And we're like, okay, well, let's go and explore the neck. And he had a bullet fragment, you know, right at the takeoff of C7. So that's one of the spinal nerves in the neck. To remove, we removed a bunch of scar and, and, and unanticipated. So we helped his pain. I mean, his pain, it didn't get completely better, but it went from like a 10 out of 10 to like a one and a half out of 10. It was amazing. Wow. But, but I have a video from two weeks after surgery where he's like, I couldn't move my hand at all before surgery. Now I can do this. Now I can do this. Now I can do this. And that was an oh. unanticipated, you know, early benefit of that surgery. So that's oh, probably agreed. the most rewarding case I've had recently, you know, taking a 19 year old kid that had just this really devastating injury and, and was able to make him quite a lot better. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So congratulations. It's got to feel good. Dr. McCabe, how about you? What do you find challenging about hand surgery and, and what do you find rewarding? And maybe tell us about a case. Yeah, so it's an interesting dichotomy because our day-to-day -day in the office, most patients are very pleasant. People are fun to talk to. And the stakes, the, uh, the patients uh, have problems that aren't life-threatening. And by and large, we can help them. So in, in general, our office days are quite enjoyable. And then the opposite can be true as well. The stakes can be very high. As you heard, people get severe injuries. They're not able to work. They lose their insurance. Um, so the stakes can be very high for a person's quality of life. And uh, so it's an interesting dichotomy that we have. Um, I think the, the challenging things that uh, I find are uh, sometimes we have uh, long operations through the night. And as you get older, uh, those are harder and harder. The next day becomes more and more difficult. Oh, yes. I think... The <laughs> The, uh, the enjoyable things, the hand is so intricate in its anatomy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as a hand surgeon, we study the anatomy. And sometimes we find uh, problems that are interesting uh, developments based on the complex anatomy of the hand. Mm -hmm. So I can give you an example. Um, so we had a patient who was a golfer. And uh, he had uh, pain in the palm of his hand right where a bone called the hook of the handmate is. So we're always on the lookout for that. You can say, oh, you're a right-handed golfer and all this stuff. And uh, so that's fun. But is it, so I got a CAT scan to look at the hook of the handmate. I was sure he had a hook of handmate fracture. And sure enough, he had a tumor of the ulnar nerve in, uh, in the location just adjacent Guillaume's Canal. Ah. So, uh, so that was a fascinating situation where I'm sure he had a hook of the handmade fracture. He had a schwannoma of the, of, uh, the ulnar nerve in Guillaume's Canal. So, yeah. I mean, things like that come up. And, and kind of surprise you. They surprise you, but they make your day because they, they're so intricate with the anatomy that it just gives you such a nice feeling when yeah. you see it all, how it all works together. Yeah, that's great. And he improved afterwards, I'm sure, after his surgery. Yeah, he, so we took out the schwannoma, and of course, he, she, he had a little spot of numbness, which he wasn't happy about. 
So, but, uh, well, well, well advised. It's better than pain. Yeah. So I think the dichotomy between between just chatting with people and enjoying people, and then the realization that you know these are critical problems for a patient because it involves their ability to work and do their daily go through their daily life as we call them the activities of daily living. Dr. Ketchum, your thoughts? Very early on in in my training, when I was a resident, I realized uh, that there were, of course, many problems to be addressed, but two that came uh, to the fore for me were flexor tendon repair and correction of Dupuytren's contracture of the hand, which is a problem because through age and through diminished blood supply, nodules and later cords are formed that go to the fingers. The nodule contracts. It's a locomotive that drives the process, and the fingers come down gradually and can't be straightened. So very difficult problem for some people to function as this begins to happen. And so those kinds of challenges in hand surgery probably prompt you to try to study them further and try to come up with solutions for patients. And I assume you find that pretty rewarding. Very, very rewarding, right. I did devote a lot of my energy towards those two problems. One of the most interesting operations that I was able to perform was in the Navy. I had a patient that had a severe burn of his thumb, and all the nerves and blood vessels were destroyed along with the tendon that moved the end joint of the thumb. But the index finger and middle finger were also involved and could not be used to reconstruct them. So I did what is known as an island medical flap where I took the side, including the skin and nerves and arteries, of the ring finger and tunneled it across to the thumb to reconstruct the area that had been damaged. So the day after surgery, I went to that patient and I touched his thumb and said, what does this feel like? And he said, it feels like my ring finger. That's what the brain thinks at least, yeah. So a couple of months later, Simon touched his thumb again and said, what does that feel like? He said, it feels like my middle finger. Oh, <laughs> and then a couple over. of months later, he said, feels like my index finger. And after six months, he said, it feels like my thumb. Yay, success. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic story. <laughs> Wonderful. What are your thoughts about the potential future of hand surgery, what the future holds for hand surgery? What uh, further advances might you foresee, or what would you like to see that maybe we really don't have a, a path for yet, a, the technology for yet? What do you think about that? You know, it's really hard to predict the future, Regina, but uh, I think of course. in my own experience that the treatment of Dupuytren's contracture, the treatment of flexor tendon injuries, and the transfer of large pedicle flaps will be improved with time. Dr. McKay, what do you think? So I think a big thing that's happening and has happened is prevention of injuries. I think industry is a lot safer mm. than it used to be. And uh, uh, nevertheless, we can't stop people from doing crazy stuff. 
So I think a big role of hand surgery in the future will continue to be to take care of injuries or trauma. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that the organization of hand surgery trauma care uh, from a logistic basis is one thing that is improving and will continue to improve. Um, there are a lot of medical advances, a lot of un trying to understand uh, and do research on the role of uh, medical treatments in Dupatrons, for example. I think that uh, there's a lot of research uh, uh, in the care and uh, management of patients with the various types of arthritis, huge advances in the care and management of rheumatoid arthritis through medications, and uh, maybe some burgeoning interest in uh, prevention and care of osteoarthritis, which is probably the leading cause of disability around the whole world. Mm. So uh, I think these are some of the major areas that uh, will move forward in uh, hand surgery over the next couple of decades. Wonderful. Dr. Endress, anything to add to that? I mean, not a lot. I, I would say that I think uh, as we gain further understanding and a lot of the, the fine you know, biochemical pathways of, of healing and develop ways to augment healing, we'll have you know, newer and better compounds to make you know, tendons heal better or nerves regrow faster or bones heal faster, mm -hmm. that, that sort of thing, or, you know, inject in a joint and restore cartilage or prevent cartilage loss, things like that. Mm -hmm. Like Good I think, point. you know, some of these yeah. advances in, I guess, surgical augmentation via biochemistry will become more commonplace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how about um, potential advances for tendon or nerve repair without sutures um, using bioengineered special glue or, you know, things like that, that, that may have some promise in the future? Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure that stuff. I know it's been studied, you know, already to some degree. And I, I just think it's uh, not mainstream yet, but I think there are yeah. already options for some of those things yeah. out there. What about um, the future of robotics in hand surgery? Um, you know, potentially letting us uh, you know, do remote control surgery, say, overseas or something like that? What do you think is on the horizon for that type of thing? Anybody have any thoughts about that? I mean, I think those are great for working inside body cavities. I'm not sure. I mean, so I think the local aspect of robotics is not as apical unless you can teach a robot to sew a blood vessel together better than you can a human. You know, I think that's a little ways off. As far as the remote, I think... Um, Again, I, th I think it's just what we do in hand surgery is is so unique that I think it would be very challenging to be able to do it remotely, but, but you know, who knows? You never know. Dr. McCabe, what do you think? Yeah, so uh, robotics brought up one more thing uh, to mention about the future, and that's the uh, development of prosthetics. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, so there's tremendous development of prosthetics and the control of prosthetics. And the goal is to get the will from your brain to control the prosthesis. Yeah, and just to clarify, a prosthesis is an artificial body part, basically, artificial limb. Yeah. Yes. So, so tremendous advances. There's tremendous uh, research and development uh, uh, in that area. And, um, and it may be that transplantation will be usurped by uh, the development of prosthetics in the future. One mention about uh, distance surgery, we wonder, is it possible for us to look at a general surgeon doing surgery in a battlefield somewhere or in a developing country? 
and uh, maybe looking at a trauma patient's arm and helping a surgeon there make decisions. I'm not sure it's feasible, as uh, Ryan mentioned, but it's something that I'm sure people yeah. are interested in. Uh, yeah, we'll Just the telemedicine component, not necessarily the right. operative control component. Right. Good, good distinction. Well, all right, you guys, this has been wonderful, a great conversation. Thank you for taking the time to be here. And I so appreciate that. And, and it's really, I think, so beneficial to the listeners to have a better understanding of what the field of hand surgery is all about, the amazing things that can be done now, and the all-encompassing procedures, as you say, from all different aspects uh, of medicine, really, just concentrated into this one body part. It's just so wonderful. So thank you for sharing your passion for this field and your time for the Plastic Surgery Decoded listeners. Appreciate it. Thank you, Regina. You're the best. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you for asking me, Regina. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you, as always. Thanks, guys. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something, too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.